Welcome to the Lead Podcast, helping you to get it, grow it, and give it. Hey everyone, welcome to the Lead Podcast. My name is Ryan Becker and I am here with Jennifer Jill Schwerzer. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. It's good to be here. Yes. Uh, so tell us just a little bit about yourself and how you got involved with the hashtag church Two kind of movement. Okay. I'm a counselor. I've done a lot of things in my life, author and musician, but currently I'm working. My day job is counseling. Uh, but years and years ago, I had an experience that sort of set me up to be an advocate for victims. And I'll tell you what the experience was. I was a young Christian I worked in a ministry led out by a narcissistic man who really ran the ministry like a cult and preyed on almost all of the women, the women in, in the group. Um, he harassed me. He assaulted me twice. Fortunately, I was able to fend him off and live to tell my story, <laughs> but it was difficult to get people to believe. Um, the ministry had you know, what we call a purity culture which strongly emphasized modesty pretty much for women. And uh, we had to adhere to a strict dress code. It was very archaic dress code. And if the women were too uh, talkative or outgoing, they'd be accused of flirting. So it was a lot of pressure on the women to control the sex drives of men. (laughs) Wow. And you see, yeah, you see this in other cultures too, particularly in honor societies and, certain certain cultures where the entire moral responsibility just about is put on the women for controlling the men's sex drives and they're held accountable if anything goes wrong in that department. So this is a kind of where it was at. And the subliminal thinking was that if a man lusted, a woman must have done something to tempt him. Mm. So when something would go wrong, the pressure would increase on the women. So this leader ended up having sex with a number of women and even even after five or six cases it still ended up being the woman's fault whatever it happened you know Mm. um in addition there was a very legalistic mindset to where because the man didn't actually have intercourse it wasn't sex do you know what i'm saying like that wow that happens in a lot of uh it happens among young people you know in a lot of christian circles even in the Adventist church where if it isn't intercourse, then it's not sex. It can be dry. I don't want to be too graphic here, but it can it can be to the point of, of um, climax and still not be sex just because there was no penetration, which is what they call it is veggie sex. But <laughs> as vegetarians know, veggie is still real, you know? Yeah. And I, I, don't think, I don't think God is fooled by that type of thing. And I'm not just talking about abuse here. I'm talking about, you know, people fooling around outside of marriage if if you're having sexual pleasure in the context of physical contact with a person, it's sex. Let's just be clear about that. So this guy, you know, because he had this very legalistic, very old covenant mindset, thought, well, if I don't have intercourse, then it sort of placated his conscience. So he wouldn't actually have sex. But he ended up having what I would call sex with just about every woman if she wasn't over 70 or you know, extremely overweight or extremely unattractive in one way or another, he would end up having um, some kind of attempt to have some kind of relationship. And in most cases, because he was such a gifted manipulator, he succeeded in getting the women to cooperate. And we'll go in later into 
why that's still abuse. But just for the sake of the storyline, the first time the man assaulted me, I was in a small back room. It was a restaurant ministry, so there were all these rooms, and it was in a small back room. And I pushed him away, and he left me alone. But he gave me a letter the next day blaming it all on me, long, you know, loquacious letter with all of this reasoning in it that it was my fault. And what he was doing was he was conditioning me not to speak up because if I spoke up, he would get in trouble. Yeah. Uh, if, if he could convince me ahead of time that I would be blamed, then maybe he could keep me quiet. So anyway, the second time he assaulted me was at an airport. I was dropping him off and he lunged at me from the driver's side and I hmm. folded into a fetal position and he finally gave up. Fortunately, he wasn't a rapist. You know, he wasn't like going to physically force me because he could have much yeah. bigger, stronger than me. But I knew I'd be blamed and I didn't want to speak up. But God, wow. through a series of circumstances and signs, if you will, persuaded me. There were literally signs, and I'm not a signs and wonders kind of person, but there were things that God did in the next 24 hours that convinced me, you have got to speak up or you're going to be sucked in. It was like, because he's a leader of, an, of a ministry, and he was on a pedestal, and he had a lot of persona and power and charisma, and God basically you know, threw down the gauntlet and said, if you don't speak up, you're going to get sucked in. So speak up. And he convinced me to, and I'm, you know, a very, very young woman at this point in my twenties. Uh, so what I did was I admitted to a few, few key people in that ministry, what was going on and, and a bunch of weird things happened, making a long story short here that set wheels in motion where the whole story, including what was happening with other women came spilling out and became common knowledge within the ministry. And there were about maybe 25 people that were working together in this ministry. So what they did is they'd meet with the board, but what the board would do is they would let the guy stay in position, even though he was abusing his power in that ministry and his influence and using it as a means of gaining access to vulnerable women. They let him stay in that position. And they succeeded in silencing those of us that had been through what we'd been through. We ended up leaving the ministry and when the smoke cleared from my brain and I realized what had happened and I'd been silenced, I made a covenant with God. And I don't, I don't make very many covenants with God because my promises are ropes of sand, but I did make a covenant with God when I encounter this same thing in the future, in other people's experience, I'm going to speak up for them and I'm never going to let something like this go again. And so that's how I ended up. And this was like, I mean, I, I should say it this way, maybe. I was church two before church two was cool. I was church two before I was church two before hashtags existed. This is mm. like this is like thirty years ago that this all happened. And wow. I just committed to speaking up. And I knew because of what I had been through that when I did speak up I would be hated, I would be blackballed, I would be intimidated. I'd be rejected by people. I'd lose friends. I knew it because of what I'd been through. But that experience had really conditioned me to have a very sober mindset when it comes to uh, situations like this. And so I, so far, I've been part of dealing with five total abuse cases where I actually brought something in to the light. I've worked with a lot of other cases but I can think of five, including this one that I went through, where I wrote letters about someone and warned people. And and I'm, I'm I don't think I'm saying this out of pride. I think I'm saying it to glorify God. I've batted a thousand. And the reason I say that is because 
I don't go public about something. And when I say public, I don't write letters to key leaders that are over the leaders yeah. or to key people that have, I don't like put it on Facebook ever, but you know, hardly mm-hmm. ever, but yeah. um, I don't really publish about anything unless I'm 99% sure we can never be a hundred percent sure, but I have to have good solid evidence of what happened. And because God forbid that I should ever falsely accuse someone. And that is really, really important to me. And of course, every time you out someone, they're going to accuse you of falsely accusing them. That's just protocol, you know, but uh, so far I don't have any pangs of conscience about any of the cases I've been involved in. And yeah. So I have to be uh, just about, just about a hundred percent sure that the alleged victim is telling the truth. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that. And I appreciate you sharing that story. That's really powerful. Um, and yeah. I'm sorry that happened to you. I, that, Me too. <laughs> I, mean, I pastor two small churches and anytime there's any sort of sexual abuse from leadership in general, it just, it may, it just gets really under my skin. It makes me angry and it, yeah. and, um, I, I just, I can't stand it. So I, I am sorry, but I am glad that we're having this conversation. And, and so let's, Let's kind of just dive right in here. Let's give people as practical of advice as we possibly can here. Yeah. Um, what can our churches do to prevent sexual abuse? Excellent question. Let me just follow up my story with one quick insertion, and that is that the governing board of the ministry who enabled the man at one point ended up coming around out of it, and they ended up issuing formal apologies in writing to all wow. of the victims of this man, yes. So um, that was really powerful. But yeah. to, pre- to prevent abuse, well, we have a lot of work to do, a lot of work, Ryan. This is not some some easy fix here. There's a whole systemic problem here, and there needs to be a culture change in our church for there to be any kind of progress in this area. So first of all, first and foremost, education. There needs to be a change of mind we need to basically, you know, repentance, uh, what is the Greek word metanoia means a change of mind. We need repentance, corporate repentance for our church on how we have glossed over and, and, and put swept under the rug, many, many abuse cases. And in the process of that have put innocent, vulnerable people in harm's way. We need deep repentance for that as a church. And we need a complete shift in the way that we approach these things, we need to get over our sloppy agape. Uh, we need a better theology of justice. We've mm. really under, in my thinking, underestimate, under, underemphasize the justice part of the justice mercy equation, and that has ended up unfitting us for understanding how to deal with situations that are deeply sin entrenched. If you're dealing with deep sin problems, niceness just doesn't work. And we have taken Mr. Rogers' methods to Hitler-type problems and have not been able to handle them appropriately. And let me tell you what I'm talking about in specific. What often happens in the church, and this breaks my heart and enrages me at the same time, is an individual in a position of authority, whether it be a father, a teacher, a pastor, preys upon a congregant, a child, one of the vulnerable of his or her flock, and they, they take advantage of that individual, they exploit that individual, they exploit that relationship, and they exploit their office at the same time, comes out into the light of day, 
and they moved the guy. So they realized, well, he can't work with these people anymore. They're all mad at him and whatever. And so they moved him somewhere else. I've seen it happen over and over again. I can tell you about a case with a pastor. He had, let me, let me just give you the broad picture strokes of what happened here. He had a worker in his church that suddenly got moved. She suddenly left. She was working with the church, all of a sudden left. Nobody knew why. Nobody knew why. And then a few months later, a young woman who was studying the Bible with the pastor, she was preparing for baptism, and she was very young, like in her early, early 20s. And she was studying the Bible with a pastor, and the pastor knew she was going to be getting married, and he pulled out his laptop during the Bible study. I mean, if this had been Israel of old, he would have been struck dead with a lightning bolt right then and there. But <laughs> pulled his laptop out in the Bible study and said, you need to look at these websites because you're getting married. And he tried to look at pornographic websites with this girl. Mm. So she, she goes to the elders of the church and, and mentions that this happened, and that she's uncomfortable working with him. So we start to think this is what happened to the previous employee that left. And what we ended up finding out is that that employee had left because he was harassing her as well. And that she had gone to the conference and reported it and they moved her to another church. They did not move him. They moved her. And because they left him in a position that he had already exploited once, he had access to this very young new convert and was able to violate her. And I have a written testimony from her where she had, she just, she's just abhorred at what happened. But, you know, yeah. she's young. She's new to Adventism. Everybody walks on water when you first come into the church. Everybody has a, it's called, we call it the halo effect in psychology. So, of course, she thinks he has a halo. And these things happen, and she's just blindsided. She's like a deer in the headlights. What's going on here? And so she doesn't deal with it immediately, but she eventually reports. Um, that all happened to her because they left him in position. Wow. And that same that same pastor, when the truth came out about this second victim, uh, was let go, but nothing was put on his record. This is this, I'm sorry, but this is how our church functions. Nothing was put on his record. He went to another conference, got hired there. I wrote letters to that conference. They unhired him. And if you can imagine, this is funny to me. It's really genuinely humorous to me. I am not allowed to speak in that conference or do anything in the churches of that conference, because I told them about this perpetrator that they ended up letting go anyway. Really? But yeah, I mean, I'm the one that, oh, it's, called man. Shoot, it's called shoot the messenger, you know? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> we believe you, bang, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that is crazy. Yeah. I am, I'm just of... stunned by this. I, I really yeah. am. You yeah. know, it's... So, I. I was aware of some of this, but hearing it stories like this just makes it so much more real. And you know why? Are, are you a pastor? I am, yes. Which is, this is why you don't hear as many stories, because these women have been abused by powerful figures, and they're not going to go to powerful yeah. figures with their stories, because they, and they also know that that guy's friends with this guy, so he probably won't believe me. Mm. So we are the ones that end up hearing these stories, and um, so we get, you know, we get them in, in floods. But basically, what we need to do is we need a complete change of thinking. If a man will use the pastoral office or a woman 
to exploit congregants, that man has forfeited the privilege of being a pastor, in my thinking, forever. Mm. Depending on the details of the circumstances involved, I think it's a once-and-done situation. Some people aren't once-and-doneers, but, you know, we can have discussions about it. But if a man exploits his congregation, if if, if the shepherd, quote-unquote, is actually a wolf in sheep's clothing and he preys upon the lambs, as far as I'm concerned, he's not a shepherd anymore. Yeah, He's shown his colors. And, um, you know, there may be some cases where there will be intense efforts to remediate a person, but definitely that person needs to be let go at the very least, and maybe forever. In my thinking, it should be forever. But, you know, I'm pretty hardcore about these things. Well, but we need a change. For a good we need a, yeah, we need a change of mind, because we have thought, oh, I don't want to hurt this person. What will he do if he's, you know, he's trained to be a pastor? What can he possibly do besides pastoring? My answer to that is, how many women are there out there they feel called to pastoring that aren't able to do it because there aren't enough places that will accept them or whatever reasons they find things to do. I myself have never been a pastor, but I've been in ministry my entire adult life. And when I've needed to make money and I couldn't do just the ministry things I wanted to do and support myself, guess what? I worked at Friendly's. I did telemarketing for a period of time. I made it work. Pastors who forfeit their right to be a pastor can go to work in the trenches. They don't have to pastor. Why do we indulge these guys? This is crazy. Hmm. You know? Yeah, That's I agree. I, I, and, and, you know, I think some people may, may see that as a strong stance, but I mean, this is, a, this is something that's incredibly poisonous. It, it affects mm-hmm. everything that we do. Like, it needs a strong reaction. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So um, how, can, how can our churches talk about things like the Church 2 movement uh, in constructive ways? Right. Good question. You know, again, we need education. So I have some resources that I can suggest. Perfect. One is a little ministry. Yeah, one is a little ministry that I started with a couple friends of mine called the Bucket Brigade. The reason we called it the Bucket Brigade is because the Bucket Brigade puts out the fire before the fire department gets there. So we have that sense that we're putting out fires and we're hoping that the church will show up. And, And we have had some really positive um, responses to what we're doing on the part of people in positions of authority in the church. We're currently working on the, let me back up a little bit. The NAD has a fantastic policy on how to handle uh, abuse allegations in a church in the church context. It's a really good policy. I would say it has been under-implemented. So we, we have a proposal we're putting out to try to get it implemented in a very structured way in one of the conf, one of the unions, actually. What we're hoping is if we can get it to work there, where we have this whole system set up where people can take the allegations and they're handled properly, plus there's education going on and websites where people can report things and things. If we can get that to happen in one conference, we can sell it to the others. And I hope sometime before I croak that every conference in the NAD, at least, and maybe the World Church has implemented effective policies on how to handle abuse allegations. So hmm. we're starting out with this little, just friend, two friends of mine, we started this thing called the Bucket Brigade, and we can do trainings. We do a training called the Defender Brigade training. We've done them on site. I'm, my nonprofit owns a farm in Orlando, Florida. We've done one retreat weekend where we trained a group of guys 
as to how to handle abuse situations. And then we're also going to do offsite trainings as well. We're kind of just getting started. We have another one at the end of November. So if any of the pastors, the Southern Union want to attend that training, what they can do is reach out to, well, just look up Bucket Brigade Against Abuse on, there's a website and they can reach us through that website. Okay. And we can direct them to how to sign up for that event where they can learn how to handle these things from people that have experience. There's another ministry in the church called the Hope of Survivors. They've been doing these presentations and education for years. They have a very strong website full of really good information on this issue. The couple that started the Hope of Survivors have a story of their own. She was violated by a pastor that she was counseling with. And so they have their story and they've done a tremendous amount of ministry over the years. So that's another resource and they do presentations as well. So those are two ministries I can think of within the church, but I know there are others and there need to be more, not less. There's plenty for us to do. And there's plenty of uh, different types the ways that people have of handling, handling these things that reflect their individuality and different emphases these different groups have. Um, but those are some resources they can tap into. Wow. I'm trying to think of a good book that would help. Um, we really need to produce more material. But if they went on the Hope of Survivors website and the Bucket Brigade website, they could they could access some reading type material and some other resources that would help ramp them up and help them get more educated so that the conversations in the churches could be profitable. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's it's a negative topic, you know, so it can easily become very depressing. Yeah. People people that have been through abuse can become vindictive. Uh they are victims or survivors, I should say, but they're also sinners, and so we don't always handle the ways other people sin against us <laughs> in mm. a way that isn't sinful in and of itself. So we we have to make sure to have solutions available for people when we discuss these things. The thing with the Adventist church is we need to discuss these things on a church-by-church basis because all church discipline is handled on an individual church basis. Yeah. There's an individual that uh, some of us worked with years ago that was violating numerous people. He was a lay minister and quite prominent and he really never owned what he had done, but he ended up getting rebaptized because of a local church that believed his side of the story and didn't check in with the other people. Wow. And so, you know, there, I would say that if there's an allegation, I know it's hard. I know it takes a lot of bandwidth, a lot of energy, but listen to both sides and make sure that you're not only believing who you want to believe. And I'll say this about perpetrators. Generally speaking, the perpetrator plays a role within the culture where they are valued in that culture. Generally speaking, the victim is not as valued. Generally speaking, the perpetrator preys on individuals who are not highly valued in the system because if they do talk about what happened, then people are more likely to believe the perpetrator over the victim. And so the perpetrators know this, and so often they will choose victims that are very weak socially. But in addition, often the perpetrators are very outwardly charming and valuable and highly esteemed individuals. So it's very, very difficult to hold them accountable. 
because people will hate you for it. Yeah. And you'll hate yourself for it because, you know, you're calling out someone who everybody sits there when he preaches and thinks they're wonderful. You know, it's a very, very difficult thing to do, but we have to get over our aversion to confronting sin. And I would say this, that if we as Christians had practiced Matthew 18, just faithfully, just generally, not just with abuse cases, but if we were used to going face-to-face with sin problems amongst us and doing it in the spirit of Christ-like love and redemptiveness, we'd be much better at it. Oh, yeah, and for we, sure. we would have trained ourselves to handle these really, really hard cases. Yeah, thank you for that. Mm-hmm. And those are going to be some awesome resources. Uh, we're, we have a tradition, excuse me, <clears throat> I'm sorry about that. <laughs> we... We have a tradition with the lead podcast that we throw all these resources into the show notes. So listeners, you can head there and find out all these different websites that that Jennifer is listing off for us because this is this is really great information. Um, so mm-hmm. let's keep going. You've talked a bit about the victims, and so I want to kind of shift that way a bit. Uh, what are avenues that victims can take to seek help and justice in their situations? Yes. Well, I would again suggest that they approach either the Bucket Brigade through the website or the Hope of Survivors. And okay. um, just 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 tell them the story. There are people, you know, willing to listen. I would I would encourage them to make it as concise as possible because when you get flooded with these kinds of things, it's hard to read long long documents. But if they can boil it down to a page or two, and make sure that it's factual and to the point, what happened? What we're going to want to know is did the person that you had this sexual encounter with occupy a position of authority over you because if that's the case it's not generic adultery or an affair it takes on a different tone when there's an, a power imbalance in a relationship yeah so we we have to and, and let me let me just insert this that we have to coordinate these things because not every case is the same so what we utilize is a, a spectrum of abuse So on one end of the spectrum of abuse, you have, for instance, forcible rape. There's zero responsibility on the part of the victim and 100% responsibility on the part of the perpetrator. Another case that's on that end of the spectrum is child abuse. If if that's a child, there is zero responsibility on that child and 100% responsibility on whoever had sex with that child. Mm. Right. Yes, absolutely. Um, but then, but then there's the other end of the spectrum, which is these difficult cases where you have, for for instance, a pastor. Now he's in position of authority over the congregant, and influence over the congregant, and he can exploit that influence. But say the congregant was very, very, very cooperative and consensual, and even pursued the pastor. I wouldn't be as hardcore black and white on that. I, I would hold the individual that had sex with the pastor, the congregant, somewhat responsible for that because they were consensual. They could say no, depending on their level of mental health and resiliency, they could have said no. And of course, that's another scenario where the person has less responsibility if there's mental illness involved. But so we try to judge these things fairly. And what I often turn to to help illustrate this is the biblical story of Mary Magdalene. See, Mary Magdalene was led into sin, we're told, in the book Desire of Ages by Simon the Pharisee. We're also told that he was her uncle. 
So he was not only a relative, but he was a religious leader. So it was a double whammy. It was incestuous and wow. it was religious abuse. It was, it was the worst yeah. possible scenario. And she ended up demon-possessed as a result of the psychological and spiritual fallout of that experience. But he led her into sin. Now, then she went on. She, she you know, made a mess of her life, as we know. And when that whole thing finally came down was the feast at Simon's house. And you remember the story, correct? Where yes. Simon is uh, having this party for Jesus because Jesus has healed him of leprosy. So he has a party to honor Jesus. And Mary Magdalene comes to the party with this alabaster box filled with an ointment that co- the, the thing cost a year's wages. If you do all the figuring and the math, it costs, you know, in today's currency, $40,000. She comes and breaks this thing and anoints Jesus. And she begins to weep and she washes his feet with her tears and dries them with her hair. And there's this scene that plays out where Simon the Pharisee is looking at Jesus thinking if he knew what kind of woman that was, he would never let her touch him. And Jesus reads his thoughts. He reads his face, I think. And he tells a parable. And in the parable, he says there were two debtors. One was 10 times more in debt than the other. Which one should love him the more? And in that moment, if you look carefully at the text, Simon knew, and the book Desire of Ages bears me out on this, Simon knew that Jesus knew that he was the one that was 10 times more guilty than she was, and yet she was the one that was 10 times more grateful. And that's why when Jesus said, which one should love him the more? He said, oh, I suppose the one that he forgave more. Are you following me so far? Yes, yes. Yeah. So so he's 10 times more guilty. He's the one that led her into sin. Jesus knows this. Now Simon knows that Jesus knows. And Simon realizes, man, he, he could have laid me out in front of everyone. Yeah. But instead, he gave him a chance to repent. And it fortunately, is... in this... Yeah. Go ahead. No, it's, it's just crazy, like, how good Jesus is at confronting people. I know. I, it totally. just amazes me. Every time I it blows know. my mind. I'm trying to be that way, Ryan. I want to be that way, but I go bungling through these things. Um, yep, but I, I, do my, I, I do my best, and it's never neat and tidy and easy. But he confronted him, and Jesus said... Her sins, which are many, are forgiven later in the, in, the, in the scenario. He said she had many sins. So he didn't say she was completely innocent. And then there's that 10 to 1 ratio. So I think when there's consent to someone that's in greater power over you, there is some guilt on the part of the consenter. And we need to mm-hmm. be honest with them. And, and honestly, some victims have come to me and said, you know, this happened, but I don't want to blame the guy. Because, you know, I I cooperated and I'll say, yeah, you're right. You have some responsibility here. But that doesn't mean that he didn't abuse you and he didn't abuse the office. At the very least, he took advantage of you. So let's not let him off the hook just because you're somewhat responsible for what you did in the context of this sin that was committed against you does not mean that he did not commit a sin against you. (laughs) He's still responsible for his part in this. And let's hold him responsible because... He's in a position of leadership. So that was a huge diversion. What was the question you asked again? Um, you said, <laughs> How can, what, what avenues can victims take to seek help and justice? Yeah, they need to talk to either the Hope Survivors or the Bucket Brigade. Those are the two main ministries that I know of that will take these allegations. And we will try to work from there to help, um, help work with the situation. We'll do our best. Um, I also right. have a counseling, a counseling network. We have counselors and coaches, and 
a variety of costs and we're willing to set these these people who are struggling with their mental health as a result of this up with people that can help them on a weekly basis. So um, those are just two things that they could reach out to bucket brigade, hope the survivors. And awesome. another thing I want to touch on, are we running out of time? No, you're fine. Keep going. We'll probably end up splitting this into two episodes just because I don't want to stop it. Like this is amazing. So this is okay, really good. great stuff. So if you've got time, let's keep going. Okay. So let me say one more thing. And that is, um, you know, how does this affect our witness? I want to touch on that. My answer that, yeah, my answer to that question is watch the movie Spotlight. Have you seen that movie, Ryan? I have not. I've never even heard of it. Okay. It's a fantastic movie. I think it got a bunch of, um, a bunch of awards. It was like two years ago, a group of my, my good Adventist conservative friends who hardly ever go to movie theaters went to it because we do the subject matter and we watched the movie and we went into the foyer of the movie theater, joined hands and prayed. And we prayed, may this never be said of us because the story of, of Spotlight is that the investigative journalism team of the Boston Globe newspaper uncovered a labyrinth of abuse cover-ups by the Catholic archdiocese. And it, the whole movie is, 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 is a true story and it's so well done. It's so tactful. You know, for Adventists that are careful about media, I don't even think there's a lot of F-bombs or anything in the movie. There's no sex. There's no violence. It's just a really well-done movie that really, really gets the story across effectively. And I think every Adventist should have to watch that and realize, I'm sorry, this is an area no, of emotion for me, but that we should have to watch that. And we should say, God, may this never be spoken of among us. May we deal faithfully and never enable people in positions of power just because they're powerful. May we never be intimidated by the specter of confronting sin in a leader. Maybe we could be courageous like Nathan was courageous confronting David uh, with his sin with Bathsheba, which, by the way, I believe was abuse, a form of abuse. Um, oh, absolutely. I agree. May we, may we have that Nathan courage to stand there and point. And if you read in the book, Patriarchs and Prophets, he raised his left hand to heaven and he pointed at David with his right hand and said, loudly, thou art the man. This was not some wimpy confrontation. He was in earnest with David, and, and it succeeded in bringing David to repentance. And we would have missed out on that if there hadn't been a Nathan. See? Mm, and so, yeah. may you know, you, you come away from that movie, at least I did, saying, I, I never want to crumble before the prospect of calling someone out on one of these abuse cases because I'm afraid of the social fallout to me. Mm. And, and believe me, the social fallout is there. I've just been through a situation in my own personal life handling a case that was really very borderline. It was, there was a lot of consent involved. I couldn't really fully commit to it being pure abuse. I was being trying to be very fair with the situation, but unfortunately the way it was handled by the person and the supporters of the person made it much worse than it needed to be. And, and I've taken a hit socially. I know there's people out there as a result that don't think well of me because of it and think I'm some mean spirited person who has an agenda. I'm like a man hater or something. And it's not true. I don't think, I mean, I could be apart from Jesus, but I don't <laughs> think that's where I'm at in my experience. Well, I think, but it's, you know, I think people can't, can't compartmentalize from when a pastor has done something good and then a yeah. pastor be, has turned into a monster, you know, in private. Like when you sin, 
it doesn't mean that you haven't done good things before. It just means that now you've sinned. And, and I think some people just have a hard time differentiating between the two. And so you end up becoming the scapegoat. This is typically what is done is you say, well, this man did this and they say, Oh, but he's so nice. Mm -hmm. You know, he was, he brought cookies to my grandmother when she was in the hot or whatever, you know, he visited, you know, they they mentioned all the good things he did. That's so Catholic. You know, it's like, Mm. if he does good things, it cancels out the bad things. Like, or, mm. or, or do we not really understand the depravity of human nature that someone can be good and led of the Holy Spirit, but they can stray from that? Now, let me clarify that typically when perpetration happens in a church context, um, perpetrated by a church leader, it's one of two scenarios. One is that the man is a decent human being, but he lost his way and was either dealing with a boatload of marital problems, unhappiness at home, a lot of triggering factors and provoking factors, and then ended up infatuated with a church member or whatever, someone in his circle, and acted out inappropriately. That person may not be a hardcore narcissistic abuser. They may be um, someone who can experience, you know, recovery. But there's not a few people that perpetrate abuse in a church context that are of a different category altogether. And they have a narcissistic personality where they repeatedly take advantage of people in small and large ways. And they narcissists know how to appear to be good people. And they know how to manipulate people. They know how to get people to like them. And so they're very calculated, very manipulative, and there are people of that stripe. And I don't call anyone a pure narcissist because we all have narcissism, but there are people that are farther along on the narcissism spectrum than others. Oh, and yeah. unfortunately, unfortunately, the church draws, there's actual statistics about being a higher numbers of narcissistic abusers that are drawn to the clergy. And you can see why, because you get a whole congregation full of potential victims. You get instant status as a pastor, you're, you know, instant honor. And I know not all pastors feel like they have honor because churches can also chew up their pastors and spit them out. And I acknowledge the reality of that. But in some cases, anyway, especially if you're a gifted public speaker and a charismatic individual and and you're um, held in high esteem in the denomination, you come walking on water to that congregation and you've got a whole group of people that are hanging on your every word and think the best of you. And it's a really a situation that's ripe for the picking of a, a perpetrator taking advantage of congregants. Mm, so absolutely. we, we need that. We need Nathans among us that are willing to um, lose even their social standing over something like this. And I have lost friends. I've, you know, I don't like it. I like being liked. I like people yeah. to think of me as a nice person. I try to be nice to everyone, but I find that in cases like this, you really can't just be nice. You can be kind, but sometimes kindness requires a certain strength and a willingness to confront. And that's really ultimately kinder than enabling, yeah. but it, it doesn't seem kind on the surface. Mm, that's so, powerful. Yeah. Yeah, I think everybody should go see Spotlight and then should pray in in the foyer of the movie theater, just like we did, and commit themselves to handling these cases with integrity. Which I do want to clarify on that. I did Google Mm -hmm. it while you were talking about the movie, and I have heard of it, but I haven't seen it yet. 
I forgot what yeah. it was, but yes, I am gonna. I'm look. That's gonna be next on my on my watch list this week. So thank you good, for that. Good. Um, okay, so let's let's switch gears now, right? I'm a pastor. You're someone who specializes in this kind of area as well, and and you've made it a passion of yours. But what about the church member who's just sitting there in the pew every Sabbath and 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 is kind of detached from the situation? What can an kind of everyday normal detached church member do to help and support abuse victims? Good question. Well, the reality is that the chances of the victim reporting to them versus a church leader are actually higher because, again, that victim has been abused by a man in authority, and they're probably going to be adverse or they, in many cases, are afraid to go to men in authority, number one, because they're men in authority and they just got abused by a man in authority, but number two, typically the people in authority are friends with the other people in authority, so... They're going to be actually more likely to talk to a co- another congregant. And I think congregants can look out for signs. They would look for signs in children. If there's a sudden downturn in their behaviors, in the grades that they're getting, and they're acting out in certain ways, there could be sexual abuse involved. If a person suddenly becomes inexplicably, a child or an adult, inexplicably depressed or withdrawn, um, query, query kindly and in a non-invasive way, but let that person know that you're willing to talk and you're willing to hear them if there's something they need to share. Uh, there need to be mothers in Israel and fathers in Israel whose hearts are open and whose ears are open. And I think we also need a little culture change in the arena of redefining gossip. Gossip is when I talk about things that I should be talking directly to the person about. And instead, I talk to someone else about them. And I do it because there's a sort of carnal enjoyment involved in gossip. Gossip is not the same thing as character referencing or, in the case of abuse, reporting abuse. Paul said, beware of Alexander the coppersmith. He has done me much harm. Apparently, this man was going from church to church and taking advantage of people. Paul put it not only in conversation, but he put it in the Bible. It was an yeah. inspired writing, you know. So there wasn't, we've, we've been kind of black and white on the issue of gossip, and we've made it seem like any kind of reporting of anything anyone did wrong to anyone else is a form of gossip. But think about it. Matthew 18 entails talking about wrongdoing to someone other than the person that did the wrong. Because if the first step of Matthew 18 fails, we go to the second step. And the second step is to take one one or two other with you. You can't take them with you without telling them what the allegations are. They're going to hear about it. So Matthew 18 is not about silencing all allegations of wrongdoing. It's about handling it appropriately. And so let me say that the church needs to change the culture on that and realize there is a place for people to to listen to harm that has been done from one church member to another. And so mothers and fathers in Israel, you know, elders and, and counselors among us need to have our ears open and we need to be willing to protect the flock and be willing to hear, at least hear out these allegations. And I want to point out one other thing, and that is in Matthew 18, the preamble to Matthew 18, uh, 15, 18, no, 18, 15, sorry. Okay, so Matthew oh, 8, 18, 15 is if your brother sins, 
go to him alone, between you and him alone. And then the second step is take one with you. And the third step is take it before the church, right? That's appropriate church uh, process. That's gospel order. So people will sometimes mistakenly hear an allegation of abuse, say a um, a 14-year-old girl was supposedly groped by an elder in the church, okay? So we hear these stories. And so she says, he groped me, you know, he did this and he said these inappropriate things. What we will do sometimes in the church is, I think, in a naive application of Matthew 18, 15, we'll say, well, you need to confront him. But that is like telling a chicken who's just had every feather plucked out to go back to the fox and say, you shouldn't have done that to me, fox. You know, Mm -hmm. that chicken is waiting to be eaten. So what we need to do instead is read what preambles Matthew 18, 15, which is this whole sermon Jesus gives on the little ones. And he says, if you offend a little one, you deserve basically capital punishment, that a millstone be tied around your head and you thrown in the sea. So, mm. you know, don't offend little ones. So he's talking about little ones. And if you read between the lines of little ones, you realize that Jesus is saying these are little ones. They're powerless individuals, and those people need an advocate. So let's apply Matthew 18 intelligently rather than in a black and white kind of thoughtless manner, in a mechanistic kind of manner. And realize that when someone's already been exploited by someone, they shouldn't go back and confront that person. That's putting them in harm's way all over again. That person needs an advocate. Hmm. And so we we need to be willing. I I think the church needs more counselors, more mothers and fathers in Israel, more mentors and coaches and disciples that are willing to play the second, to, to, to take the second role in Matthew 18, where we're willing to advocate in behalf of those that have suffered wrongdoing. We need more people. So that's that's one thing the church can do. Um, And I think there's an appropriate way of reporting these things. One of the things that um, one of the mistakes that's often made is you take the individual who is alleging that they were abused by a church authority and you send them to a tribunal of authority figures and they have to tell their story. So say this 14 year old girl that got supposedly groped. You put her in front of all the elders of the church, and she has to say what he did. That's humiliating to her, and that's really very out of sync with the principle of modesty. She Mm. shouldn't have to talk about her body parts in front of a group of men. So that girl needs an advocate. So, And this is in the NAD policy as well, is that when there's an abuse allegation, there's a pool of individuals that act as mediators between that individual and the governing boards, the sexual ethics committees on a conference level or whoever happens to be in a governing position. So there need to be advocates and there need to be mediators so that these people who've already been victimized don't have to then be re-humiliated and re-traumatized by standing in front of a bunch of people and talking about very, very private things. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, that's really great to know. I actually did not know that, um, that there, that, that was in policy. Um, in fact, I was, I didn't even know there was an NAD policy really on this, outlining any detail on it up until you brought it up in this episode. So it's one um, of the best kept secrets in the church, and apparently all so. Us, <laughs> all three of us in the bucket brigade, when when one of our members, Sarah uh, McDougall, you know, it's, it's it's part of this huge ethics policy that is just this, you know, who has time to read these things? But it's one section that deals with sexual abuse, and she pulled it out and like put it in a document, and we all read it, and we were like. Why did we not know that this thing exists? You know, <laughs> we were like, yeah. thank you, NAD. Good, you know, mm. long live the NAD, you know, <laughs> the NAD for the win. Good job, guys. We were so happy to see it was at least in writing. 
and now we're in the process of trying to implement. But we can implement it on a church-by-church basis by being willing to be mediators for people who allege uh, that they've been abused. All right, well, let's um, let's go ahead. I got two more questions for you. Okay. Um, and then we'll kind of close out. And thank you so much for your time again. This has been amazing. Mm. Um, I love, I've loved every second of this. Um, mm. How can churches as a whole that have been damaged by sexual abuse find healing and move forward? So this is like a pa- it's been uh, you know a pastor's been accused and 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 found guilty of that issue of of whatever happened and been removed and the church is now trying to recover, trying to find its own identity, learn how to trust again? What what do they do? A lot of times, these churches loved their pastor, and there's a lot of mourning involved in discovering that someone you loved and valued could be guilty of something like this. What these church members need to understand is that this person coming face-to-face with what they did and reaping the consequences of it is actually the best thing for them. There, There is mercy injustice. The two are inextricably entwined. You can't separate mercy from justice and have either of them retain their integrity. So when that pastor, through unfortunate circumstances sometimes, confronts what has been going on in his life and suffers the fallout of it, it's his wake-up call and his call of mercy from God to his soul. And there is redemption. You know, if God can't redeem us and save us, even though we commit grave sins, then what hope do any of us have? Because we're all potentially that perpetrator. I don't think there are at the foot of the cross. I don't think all sin is the same, but at the foot of the cross, I mean, everything is dealt with the same way. Everything merited the death of the Son of God in our behalf. And so there is redemption for that person, and they can find healing on the other side of that, and they can even minister again, but in appropriate ways. And how that plays out in the individual life of the the individual that perpetrated the sin is, you know, different in each case, but there are ways that they can, they can move forward from this horrible chapter of their lives. And the church members need to realize that and they need to continue to love that person and support that person in as much as they can do it without enabling that person. Um, So that, that can help a lot. Just knowing that we're not into putting people in the lake of fire. We're not into putting them on the rack we're not yeah. into beheading people or burning them at the stake. That's, you know, not what we're doing here. We're trying ultimately to do what is best for them. And, you know, I don't know if you remember the passage in Corinthians. I think it was Second Corinthians 5, where there's an incestuous relationship between a member of the church and his stepmother. And Paul calls out not the individual, but the elders. And he says, why are you guys standing here and letting this thing happen? He calls out the elders who are doing nothing about it. And he says to the elders, this is how you need to deal with this guy. Deliver him to Satan for the purification of the flesh, that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And if you boil that down, it sounds a little medieval or something, but if you boil it down, it's basically saying, don't protect the guy. Given the consequences and the church-mediated consequences are when someone commits a sin like this, they have to be disfellowshipped. They have to be uh, disciplined. But the reason you're doing it is to put them outside of the church so the church no longer acts as an insulation over the person, so God can get direct access to that person. And in the context of that direct access, that person can experience a wake-up call and come back to the Lord and maybe join the church again in the future. That's the end game for God. 
is the salvation of everybody involved, mm. not just the victims, but the perpetrators as well. But God cannot get to those people without them reaping some of the consequences of what they've done. Of course, none of us reap all the consequences because if we did, we'd be dead. We'd yeah. be like in the lake of fire dead, you know, <laughs> but, yeah, absolutely. but we reap some of the consequences and those consequences are mercy. And so Paul says, deliver him to Satan for the purification of the flesh, that the spirit might be saved. So he has salvation of that individual in mind. And church members need to realize that, that this, even though it's hard, this is a good wake-up call for the perpetrator, and they can experience healing and redemption, which will be different depending on the case. Hmm. I'd right. say that's one way they can move forward. And another is to just, you know, like with any horrible thing that happens to us, at some point, we have to start belly, stop belly aching over horrible things that happen and say, okay, what's my takeaway? What have I learned from this? And what we learn from these events is that sin really is horrible. And, you know, that can really, like, bring us to deeper repentance, even for our lesser, quote-unquote, lesser sins. You know, seeing these things happen in the church and realizing the gravity of the sin problem and how desperately we need Jesus every moment. And that really deep inside of us, every one of us is a narcissist. Maybe we haven't yeah. developed it as much as someone who would abuse a congregant or a child, God forbid. But we're all potentially that if we developed in that. And this can be God's way of calling us to deeper repentance. Hmm. And so those are a couple of things, a couple of, of, you know, just thoughts that I would give a, a church. And they can also, um, you know, one of the members of the Bucket Brigade actually recently went uh, her name is Nicole Parker. She just recently went to a church that had a terrible experience with a pastor who was found out and it actually went legal and everything. It was terrible. And she actually went to the church and like ministered and talked to the congregation, just said, you know, help them move forward, you know, and mm -hmm. um, sometimes just bringing a healing force into a, a church like that. Someone who does counseling, who does healing work can be helpful. Yeah. Absolutely. So I would suggest those things. Yeah. Thank you. That's great. All yeah. right. Well, as yeah. as we kind of wind down, what what are your final thoughts? Anything that you really want to share? Make sure that gets included in this uh, for anyone listening. Yeah, I would say this that I love the story of Mary Magdalene for a number of reasons because it makes so clear the dynamics involved in abuse situations because it shows mercy both to the primary victim, which is Mary Magdalene, but also to the perpetrator. But also it shows that people who go through uh, sexual abuse, even in a church context, which in my mind is like the worst kind, because that individual who preyed on you is usually a pastor or a leader of some kind. Yeah. And that person represented God to you. And so, especially if your walk with God is not strong, which is often the case, that person represents and it has tremendous potential for turning a person away from God. It can be very, very wounding to a person's spiritual experience. But right smack dab in the middle of the gospel story is the story of abuse. And you know what Jesus said? He said, wherever this gospel is preached, what this woman has done will be spoken of in memory of her. And he, so he wasn't just saying just the anointing. He was saying in memory of her, he wants the whole story told of how she was violated by things that were outside of her control. We don't know exactly what the circumstances were, but it's interesting. Her parents are never mentioned. I don't know if you know that, but there's Martha. That was her sister. There's Lazarus. That was her brother. There was all kinds of Bible stories involving those, but we never hear from the parents. Where were the parents? 
So we don't know if the parents died, but we think possibly that Simon the Pharisee, being an uncle, stepped into her life as a father figure. And then, he, of all things, he took advantage of that. Wow. And not only that, but he was a Pharisee, so he was a spiritual leader. She had the very worst possible scenario, and then she acted out in the very worst possible way because she fled to Magdala so she could get away from the families and the people that knew her and try to piece her life together but utterly failed and ended up a demon-possessed prostitute traipsing the streets of Magdala. She made a lot of money. You know, she I, I've worked with prostitutes, ex-prostitutes, and they can make $10,000 a night. She was a high-end escort. You know, she had a lot of money in her savings account. Mm to buy that ointment. So this woman was completely given over to this trade. She was demon-possessed. She was psychologically deranged. She was so broken, and yet Jesus healed her, and she was, I'm sorry, I can't talk about these things without getting emotional. She was so healed. She was so healed that Jesus said, wherever this gospel's preached, tell what she's done. And if you look at the anointing of Mary, it's it's a really a metaphor of the cross because there's this ointment pouring out and the majority of it wasted, soaking into the dirt floor. But the fragrance filled the room, just like the majority of the blood of Jesus seems wasted. But the fragrance of the cross fills the universe. You know, hmm. and there's so many ways in which the offering of hmm. Mary was like it was like uh, it was like a, a portrait of the cross. And that's why Jesus said, look at her and you'll see me. And she was the most damaged person. So it really sweeps away our excuses, and it gives us permission to really heal in a radical way from these things. And so I want to leave that with people that have been through abuse, that uh, that are dealing with abuse scenarios. There is healing on the other side of this thing, and God can use that brokenness. He can speak through it, and he can show his character through the cracks better than he can show it when we're not broken. So I'm not saying he causes the brokenness. That would be a theological extreme, but I'm saying he uses the brokenness. And there's a beautiful art called Kintsugi. It's a pottery type of art where these potters will take broken pottery and they'll mold it back together with gold. And there are these beautiful veins of gold throughout the pottery. And that's what God does with our lives. He takes this brokenness and he molds us back together. And there's gold in those cracks. And he can shine through this brokenness in our story better than he could if we weren't broken. And so God is going to use it. God always has the last word. It's not that God makes these things happen. The devil makes them happen. But then God turns it all around and makes it a God thing. And he did it with Mary Magdalene. He said, wherever this gospel is preached... What she's done will be told. And that means that everybody someday soon, I think, will have heard the story of Jesus. They will all also have heard the story of Mary Magdalene. And he will shine through her story very, very brightly, just like he wants to shine through us. And so if you've been affected by abuse, God can shine through the story. Give him time to go through the healing process. And get on the right side of this issue. We all need to be very proactive. I wish, Ryan, that we could have taken every ounce of energy that we poured into having this really what was a you know a very frustrating discussion on women's ordination. In my view, it was a frustrating discussion. A lot of money, a lot of resources went in. I wish we'd put all that effort and energy and money into completely obliterating the abuse problem in the Adventist church so that we could be a clear vessel for Jesus to shine through. And I think if we focused on things like that, 
issues like women's ordination would take care of themselves. I wish we had focused in on that with all of that energy and time. I, I really pray that our people get on the right side of this issue and we all fight together. Conservatives, liberals, we should all be of the same mind on this issue. We should pray and hope that this is never spoken of among us. And we should work and strive with every fiber of our being to make sure that it never happens on our watch or if it does. And let me say this in closing too. This came out of the movie Spotlight. As I watched that, I realized, you know, nobody would hold against us that there is abuse in our ranks sometimes. It happens. These are human beings in positions of authority and human beings do these things. And everybody knows that. Nobody would expect us to have that kind of perfection. What they would hold us guilty for is covering it up. And so my prayer, and not handling it responsibly, so my prayer for Adventists is that we each individually and then collectively take a stand on the right side of this issue and say, we commit to handling these problems with a balance of justice and mercy that can be found in the love of God, and that we, we approach them fearlessly with courage, we educate ourselves, and we learn how to be effective in dealing with situations like this. That's my prayer for every single Adventist, particularly those in spiritual responsibility. Hmm. Wow. Thank you so much for all of this. This has been absolutely incredible, and I am looking forward to whatever conversations this, this our conversation, this interview, um, ends up spawning in the lives of different churches and church leaders that hear this podcast. So thank you so much for being willing to share uh, your journey with this and and all the information and things that you've learned. And, um, you know, we're going to keep praying for you as you move forward. And uh, just thank you so much for being a light in this church. Honestly, like you've just become one of my heroes in Adventism for Aww. me. Um, this is absolutely incredible. So thank you so much. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to The Lead Podcast. My name is Ryan Becker. I'm one of the co-hosts and producer of this podcast, and we really appreciate your support. If you want to subscribe, then you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, any of your favorite podcatching apps. And if you do subscribe on iTunes, then we just ask that you please leave a review. That really helps us out to know what we can do better and the things that you are already enjoying, the things that we can continue doing. Make sure you do subscribe and leave a review because we're always doing giveaways, and that really uh, that's the way that we do it, is we do it for those who have left a review. If you have any comments, questions, or feedback for the show, you can email us, leadsupodcast at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter, Roger Hernandez at leadsu, and myself at Ryan180Becker. Thank you guys so much for listening and supporting. Without you, this is not possible. We'll see you next time.